Good morning, Cedar Creek. Happy 4th of July. Thank you so much for being here. If you have no idea who I am, uh, my name is Rick, and I'm one of the pastors on staff at the Banks Mill campus of Cedar Creek Church, and I have the honor and privilege uh, of bringing this morning's word. If you have your Bible and you want to jump ahead, we'll hang out the entire time together this morning uh, in Matthew chapter 21 as we are in week two of our series called Parables. Where over the course of five or six weeks this summer, we are going to spend some time together unpacking the stories that Jesus told as a method of teaching the people who followed him. And the reason that we're doing this is, is it's going to provide some tremendous insight into Jesus's teaching and into Jesus's characters and teach us about who Jesus is, but also teach us what it looks like to follow Jesus and live with the kingdom at the forefront of our mind. And the really cool thing about the way that Jesus taught, and if you're not familiar with it, he taught through parables, which is just a collection of stories that could have been real, but aren't. They're not like dragons or Disney stories or anything like that. They are stories that could have been real, but are not. They're made up stories that Jesus used, is that Jesus uses these stories because stories are relatable. And because stories are relatable, and as we learn through listening to stories, that makes them memorable. And so for many of us in the room, if you've spent any of, the, any of your life in or around church, you probably know some of Jesus's famous stories. I think of parables like the prodigal son, parable of the sower that we looked at last week, the unforgiving servant, the lost sheep, the unmerciful servant, all of these stories that Jesus teach through, teaches through that are so memorable for us that follow him and even those of us who get on the outskirts of that. In fact, Jesus is going to teach in over 30 parables through the course of his ministry. Time and time again, we are going to see him using this. Today's parable uh, in Matthew chapter 21 is one that you may not have heard. Uh, it is one that is not very commonly taught because I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, it's actually a little bit harsh, okay? If the prodigal son is like a feel-good grace and redemption and reconciliation story about drawing back to Jesus, this one may be the opposite, okay? But somehow this is the one that I got stuck with, uh, and so this is the one that we are going to rock and roll through together. I want to give you a little bit of background about what's going on because it's important to understand why Jesus is teaching this where he is teaching this. Matthew chapter 21 opens and we are at the very beginning of what's called the Passion Week. That this is the last week of Jesus's life on earth leading up to the crucifixion. We'll look a little bit more at some of the other stuff going on here. But this is the last week before Jesus is crucified. And the parable that we look at today is actually the second in a set of three. Cool fact that I didn't know this week until I did research. That's actually a pattern that Jesus followed a great deal in his life. If you go to Luke chapter 15 where the prodigal son is, you'll see the same thing. That Jesus would tell collections of parables and each time escalate maybe how obvious the meaning was or how abrasive the parable was in an attempt to get people like myself who would have been standing there listening to him and unbelievably hard-headed to understand what exactly it is he is talking about. So this morning's parable falls in the middle of that. Uh, it, is we, it is the second of two, and it follows a parable where Jesus has just told the religious leaders that he's talking to that the tax collectors and prostitutes are more likely to go to heaven than they are. And so 
he continues, and I want to read the whole parable, and then we'll kind of jump back into it and unpack. So if you have your Bible, Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, Jesus says this, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent, him, he, sent the, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what shall he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in, the se- in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This, is the, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief of priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So again, I forewarned you, okay? We're, we're We're not jumping to the nice one here. This isn't the comfortable one, but I do wanna unpack. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus refers to the metaphor of a vineyard. Now understand, this isn't unique to Scripture. This isn't the only time that this shows up. In fact, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the vineyard is going to be used as a metaphor time and time and time again. And it's going to show up in a variety of ways, focusing on a variety of things, like bearing fruit, like hard work, like God's kingdom, like God's people. All of these ways this metaphor is going to show up. But this particular parable that Jesus is teaching talking to these Pharisees would have reminded them, and it comes directly out of Isaiah chapter five. And if you back up this week and you wanna jot that down and read Isaiah chapter five, it tells the tale of another vineyard that fails, but interestingly enough, the vineyard in Isaiah chapter five fails because of the vine. Jesus flips the coin and in a toe-stepping fashion steps to the religious leaders and says, the vine is failing now, not because of the vine, but because of the tenants who I've left in charge of taking care of the vine. And so in both places, the vine fails, but Jesus is going to say, whoa, 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 don't put this on the people. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're looking at here. But there's also another key that I want us to really focus on and that we'll launch this morning out of that happens in verse 33. In verse 33, Jesus said this to him. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants. What I want us to see is that this master has given these tenants everything that they need to be successful. He's planted it, he's put, in everything, he's put everything in place for the, for the vineyard to grow. He's even put the stuff in place for them to be able to harvest. 
He has given them all that they need for it to produce fruit. Why is that important? I'm gonna share some, some stuff from my heart. I have never been accused in my life of being overly in touch with my emotions, okay? I have been accused of being both stoic and spending the entire bulk of my life somewhere between happy and infuriated, and those two edges being closer together than maybe they are for other, we'll say more regular human beings than for myself, okay? I own this about myself. And so this week as I was thinking about this, I thought about what causes this, okay? And I'm not a psychologist, I don't know why, I mean, I got tons of reasons that I believe I am the way that I am, but we're not gonna talk about that because we don't have time for that and you guys wanna do fireworks and stuff like that and so I'm gonna be respectful of that. But I have tons of reasons for that. But the one that stuck out to me this week is my hobby, my favorite hobby in life, which is the hobby of golf, okay? If you don't play golf, I wanna describe it for you. It is an unbelievably exciting, fun, exhilarating, miserable hobby to get yourself involved. And I saw a meme one time that said, golf is a fantastic way to have a great time while getting super disappointed and really frustrated with yourself, all right? And so I've been playing golf for a while now after I got out of playing baseball in high school in the major leagues, never gave me a call, so I had to give up on that dream. And so I started playing golf and I, I was like, man, I, I wanna commit to this and try to get better. And so I started taking lessons once a week here in town and I've been doing that and, 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 it's, and it's working. But the first lesson and really the biggest lesson that I get every single time that I go is stop swinging so hard, stop swinging so hard. But you have to understand the difficulty for someone who lives their life somewhere between happy and infuriated is that my solution to hitting a bad shot is to swing the golf club even harder the next time, okay? That one didn't go far enough, what should I do? Swing it harder. The result of that is I have broken clubs, I have thrown clubs into the water, okay? I have done all of those things, but the lesson that my coach gave me as he stood there, as he, took a, as he took a club and he just held it in his hand and he hit it like this. And he said, watch it as it ticks and tell me where it's the fastest. And as it was swinging back and forth, I said, it's the fastest at the bottom. And he said, exactly right. And he said this, Rick, the harder you swing this tool, the less effective this tool is going to be because you cannot get it to do what it needs to do where it needs to do it. Now here's the thing, I've spent, my wife's not here at this service so she would stand up and say amen and maybe run a praise lap. I've spent an unnecessary amount of money on things like golf clubs. I have good golf clubs, I play with good golf balls, I have all of the equipment. The issue is that oftentimes I do not use the equipment in the way that it was designed to be used. And so Jesus as he tells this parable is going to confront us with this truth that I want us to unpack this morning. When it comes to living with the kingdom in mind, when it comes from shifting our focus from the temporary stuff of this earth to the eternal stuff of God's kingdom, we have been given by God from the very moment of creation every tool that we need to do that. 
The issue lies in the fact that we continually misuse and drift away from the tools that God has given us or hold on to them and use them in an incorrect manner that does not allow us to live with the kingdom of God in mind. And so this morning from this parable, what I want to do is just unpack three, just three tools that God has given us to live with the kingdom in mind, three kingdom tools that we have to shift our focus. The first tool that we've been given is Jesus's authority. I wish that out of this series, we could do another series so that you guys that maybe haven't spent a ton of time around the Bible could understand how unbelievably toe-stepping Jesus was to religious leaders throughout the course of his life. But not just religious leaders, a great deal of people that followed him and and talked to him and all of those things. I even think of his conversation with Peter where he looks him in the face and says, you're going to deny me. And so I want us from that reality to get a little bit more vantage of what this parable, the background of this parable and where it fits in Matthew chapter 21. As Matthew 21 opens, we see Jesus's triumphal entry. That he comes in and the crowd is chanting Hosanna, they're laying down palm leaves. We then see Jesus go into the temple uh, and people are being robbed, people are being shorted, there's injustice and we see Jesus's familiar scene of flipping over the temple uh, tables in there. We then see Jesus kill a fig tree because it's not producing fruit. And then the religious leaders begin to question Jesus's authority. And then Jesus tells the first parable that we're not gonna look at this morning, where he reminds them that the sinners are more likely to enter the kingdom of heaven than you religious leaders are. But the interesting thing is Jesus's response, and I think we skip over stuff like this, and it's so cool to me because this is so much my personality is that the religious leaders continue to question Jesus's authority. And look what he says to him in just the very first half of verse 33. Hear another parable. Jesus's authority has been questioned. Jesus does not say to them, would you guys like to listen? Do you guys want to hear what I have to say? Are you guys paying attention to what I have to say? He looks them in the face in response to their question in his authority and assumes his authority. I will tell this parable, you will listen to this parable. I've made the statement several times from this pulpit and I stand by it that what we believe, who we believe Jesus is, is the most important thing about us. That who we believe Jesus is, is the most important, the most defining characteristic in all of our life. So who does Jesus say that he is? In verse 42, he says this, Jesus said to them, and I love this, these guys who would have spent their entire life studying the scripture, I love this next question. Have you never even read the scriptures? And then Jesus makes this declaration about himself that comes out of Psalm 119. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus makes the claim here that I am the cornerstone, the Messiah, the one who has been prophesied about from the very beginning of the Old Testament. I am the one that you have been hoping for, praying for, and looking for. Here is who I am. Now, when we understand who Jesus claims to be, it leaves us a variety of responses, but it demands a response. We all have to respond to Jesus's claim, and I really see three ways that the world responds to this typically. The first one makes no logical sense, but is becoming more and more and more widespread throughout the culture that we live in, and it's the idea that we can partially accept it. And here's what it plays out like. 
You know, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a psychologist that was sent to help us with our self-esteem. He was a good life coach. Jesus was a social justice warrior. Jesus was whatever you want it to be. And the issue with all of these ideas is that they're a partial picture, if, if even a partially correct or incorrect picture of who Jesus really was. But what they really are is an attempt to recreate Jesus into what I would like for him to be. It's an attempt by me to put Jesus into the box that keeps him most comfortable and gets him to give me whatever it is that I need. But here's the reason that it doesn't make any logical sense. You can't say someone is a good teacher who claims to be God and not recognize him to be God. Here's, here's what, here, I'll give it to you in a way that will maybe will make more sense. If you go home this week and we, you respect Dr. Phil as a psychologist and all that kind of stuff, and you turn on Dr. Phil's latest episode this week, and it starts with, this week on Dr. Phil, he tells you while he is God. You're probably gonna get a little bit uncomfortable, right? You're probably gonna go, whoa, 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 whoa. So you can't separate this idea of Jesus is a good teacher, he was a good moral philosopher, he was a feel-good guy who taught us how to live more kindly to one another, or showed us how to love people better, but I just kinda do away with that God-claiming thing because he can't both be a good teacher and insane. And so you can't recognize him as a good teacher while what he taught is I am the son of God and not respond to the fact that he said that. So once we moved past that illogical response, the first logical response that the religious leaders have here is that we reject it. These religious leaders would have studied and would have been told, right now they knew that Jesus was talking to them and deliberately made the decision, it's not for us. We do not believe that that is who he is. And listen, our culture and our world rejects it for a variety of reasons, and there's, there's tons of them. Logic says there can't be a God. Science class in seventh grade taught me that there's no way there is a God. Reason, my just reasoning deductive skills have told me that this thing can't be true. But often those aren't the greatest reasons because if you investigate and look into that, often those are the falsest. That science is gonna say we can't explain all of it. Seventh grade biology didn't explain all of it and we can't fill in the holes. There has to be something more. More people that try to reduce scripture to not being true end up surrendering their life to Jesus than they do proving scripture to not be true. And so those reasons don't really hold much weight. The greatest reason that we see for people rejecting is, is because if Jesus is God, that means I can't be. That recognizing anything else as God means that you have to, that we have to, that I have to surrender what I perceive as the control that I have on my life. And so we may not say this out loud. We may not say, I don't follow Jesus because I, I want to be God, but our lives say this. I want to make my decisions. I want to lead where I want to go. I want to control my life. And surrendering all of those things, Rick, may be difficult and it may be costly. But that's exactly what the third response and the only correct response to following Jesus is and to recognizing Jesus' claim that he is God is, is to surrender. And listen, I, I wanna be fair because I'm, I'm type A and have a tendency to migrate towards being a control freak. 
the number one conversation that I have with people like me when I talk about the gospel and surrendering your life to Jesus is that I'm afraid I'm gonna lose control. And here's the really good news. You are. But here's the even better news. You don't have it. You don't control anything. My life and, and my family's life has, has time and time and time again depicted that you're one phone call away from that illusion being shattered, from having control being taken, stripped away from you. But the incredible good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the exchange is, that's offered here is false control for comfort, false control and false comfort for freedom and purpose that we no longer have to control. We can trust that there's a God who is love, who is working all things for good, both prosperity and suffering for those who are called according to his purpose. And that we can recognize that prosperity and suffering don't end on themselves. They provide purpose for us to be more suited, to more adequately live out the mission in which God has called us to live on this life. And here's the other thing. The cornerstone of the building is the defining stone of the building. The invitation is to allow Jesus to define a life that we've all made a mess of trying to define ourselves. The invitation that Jesus makes is to exchange everything that's false you've held on to for the truth that he offers. The second tool that he lays out after his authority for us to shift to being kingdom focused is Jesus's people. I used to have a fun conversation uh, for those of you who don't know, before I was in my current role, I did 10 years uh, in student ministry with middle school and high school students. And I would ask this question sometimes just to see where, where our students' heads were. And I would say, describe a Christian. Tell me, and I would ask it in a way they understand. I would ask them, tell me specifically, what does a Christian look like? And it was always fun. Do you know that like 70% of the time, the girls' small groups would go to the clothes? Like, well, they have to wear Teva sandals. They have to dress this way. They have to look like they go to Young Life. They have to do all of these things. They're probably good at Ultimate Frisbee, okay? And they would go through all this stuff. And then it would get to some of the deeper stuff and I would continue to kind of push and they would go, well, they're gonna be well-behaved. They're probably gonna follow the rules. They're probably not going to drink. They're probably try, not going to, they're gonna try to stay away from sexual activity. They're going to try to do all of these different things and they would go through that list of stuff. And then I'll, I'll I'll never forget one, one, one year I asked that question. I was in a group with high school guys and we, ha we had a guy that struggled with some gender identity and some sexual orientation stuff going on in his life and he said, I can tell you what they look like, not kind and not loving. And I said, okay. He said, you, you can always know Christians, they'll just tell you what they don't like and the people that tell you what they don't like oftentimes are the ones who are Christians. You see, what we do with this tool is often misidentify, misuse, and misplace who God's people are. Listen, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with following God's law. Please do it. It brings joy. And there's obedience found in joy in, in being, or there's joy found in the obedience and walking fruitfully with God but there's not going to be a get out of hell free card because you showed up 87% of the time to church on Sunday morning. And we're not going to behave well enough to earn God's love. 
And we are not going to show up and do those things. That's not the purpose of God's people. Look at what Jesus says about the people who were perceived to be God's people in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. These people who believed they were God's people will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I give a lot more merit to somebody when they come in and tell me not what they're for and against, but when they come in and immediately roll up sleeves and begin to get to work to fix the things that are wrong around them. Our relationships with one another were never intended to somehow elevate us above each other. But that's what we use this tool for, right? And I know this because again, students will tell what adults are feeling, they just don't know better than to not say it. And this is how it would play out. Hey, I saw this thing on your Facebook page, it doesn't look like that was somewhere you need to be. Yeah, I know that's true, but did you see Becky's post on Instagram? I went, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Are you telling me that you're justifying what you did on Friday night because what Becky did on Friday night was worse than that? And so our entire existence inside of relationships is we'll even pick relationships with people that will use that to elevate above us. But here's the reality of why that tool is given to us. No fruit ever grows on accident. That fruit requires cultivation, it requires pruning, it requires preparation, and that only happens biblically together. And so God gives us this tool of Jesus' people because we say it time and time and time again, you cannot do life alone. You can't. You have too many blind spots. You have too many areas in your own vineyard that need to be pruned, that need to be clipped, that aren't producing fruit, that you're completely unaware of. And you don't need somebody to come in and show you where you're blowing it. You need somebody who's lovingly walking beside you, helping you become joyfully what Jesus has created you to be. Jesus's people are a tool that we've been given to live with kingdom-minded mentality. And then lastly, And maybe the most fun in following Jesus' pattern of escalating, the tool that Jesus gives us here is Jesus' judgment. Everybody either just got a little bit uncomfortable or a little bit excited. And man, do we love this tool in the South. But oh man, do we also train wreck it. You can go, and I'll challenge you to do this, just go and survey Barner Group. Tons of other groups have done survey after survey for decade after decade after decade, asking people, what's the biggest barrier for non-believers in coming back to faith in Jesus? And every single time, the answer is not logic, it's not reason, it's not political party, it's not any of those things, it's not what the Bible says it's against, it's none of those things. The answer every single time to all of those surveys is church people that Jesus would urgently be talking to the Pharisees and I believe urgently talking to us this morning that the biggest barrier to people responding to the gospel somehow has become the people that claim to have responded to the gospel. Look at how it plays out in verses 40 and 41 of this story. Jesus asked the Pharisees, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And then look at how they reply. This is astonishing to me. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. 
Again, we know just a few verses for it. The Pharisees know that he is talking about them and their reply to even being presented what they're doing is to go, we deserve death. And then what do they do? Continue to do it. Why? Because we're misusing the tool. Jesus is going to go farther in verses 44 and 45 when he teaches us how to properly use the fact that Jesus is going to judge. He says this, The one who falls on this stone, talking about God's judgment, will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Do you know what biblical Christianity looks like in response to Jesus' judgment? It looks like someone who time and time again draws back to God's word, sits in God's presence, so that my brokenness might be revealed to me and that I might become repentant of my sin and live that life out to other people. Here's the issue. It's a lot easier and for some reason becomes a lot more desirous for me to deal with your sin than it is for me to deal with mine. But how, listen, I can tell you right now as a pastor, I can't fix mine. That I don't have it all together. There's moments that I literally look in the mirror and go, you are an idiot. You know what Jesus has done. You have seen Jesus' grace. You've responded to his goodness and you still made that decision. And then my response is not to allow that to break me. Oftentimes what it becomes is that breaks me for a second, but then I run around and I go, well, Becky did this. If you wanna make a gospel impact on the world, your impact will be far greater when this world sees your brokenness and desire to battle against your own sin than when it hears about my desire to beat people over the head with theirs. There was a student in my student ministry who has still not responded to the gospel because he believes that people who have responded to the gospel don't see him as worthy. A true understanding of the gospel reveals that none of us were. So when you understand what Jesus has done with us, you understand I'm guilty, I've blown it. And then here's the thing, guilty people don't celebrate justice. We celebrate mercy. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not come become this thing, not go get your Tiva sandals and your Kavu bag and know when to stand and when to sit and how to sing these songs and behave this way and don't struggle this way and don't vote this way and don't think this way and don't have these things but have these things and don't drink and don't do this. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is come to the foot of the cross, give your life to Jesus and then Jesus deals with the sin. It's never my job. Jesus says, done, paid in full. His final words on the cross, to telestai, paid in full. And somehow we respond to that goodness and then immediately begin to migrate back away from it and demand that people become something we were never able to be. So my challenge to us this morning is first to recognize that this, that this story, and again, I warned you it was harsh, I'm sorry. They gave it to me, I just have to do what they tell me to do. I'm still at that point on the totem pole here, okay? Is that there's tremendous good news when we understand the bad news of this. All of us will drift away 
from the purpose and the direction that Jesus has called us from if we don't vigilantly fight for it. And we'll all drift in one of two directions. Some of you, free-spirited type B people mostly, will drift towards lawlessness. You'll just rebel. Then the type A people like me will drift towards religion because it's neater and cleaner and it makes me feel better about me. But Jesus is going to say the fruit of the Spirit is not law and the fruit of the Spirit is not lawlessness. We can respond to the greatest display of love ever given to humanity and then surrender the entire rest of our life to paint a picture of that love on the canvas of God's creation that broken and hurting and desperate people would have an opportunity to catch a glimpse of who Jesus is by interactions with us. But again, that's not gonna come by you telling them what Jesus is against. It's going to come by you telling them that Jesus loves them and values them and desires relationship with them. And I hope this morning that you hear very clearly from this pulpit that at this church, there's no prerequisite and there's no requirement that you would drop your resume. That this is a church for hurting, broken, and lost people. Welcome to the party. They let one of them preach today. But I no longer walk in that identity because the greatest defining thing in my life is what Jesus has done for me and what he has done for you. And I want you to respond to that hope this morning. And I want those of us who have responded to that hope this morning to stop walking in anything else as the hope that we found. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, I thank you, God, for the weight of your scripture. God, that it makes us uncomfortable, that sometimes it's difficult to wrestle through, that sometimes we would like to identify ourselves as the characters that were not in the Bible. God, but I thank you that in that weight, we're pressed. We're broken to pieces. Not that we may never be reconciled, but that that breaking might point us to a God who reconciles. God, that your law and your commandment would remind us of your love and your grace and would keep us in the center of joy, God. But when we can't live up to it, and none of us can, it will remind us that your grace has already paid the penalty. So God, my prayer this morning, first and foremost, is for the people in this room who came in here believing they have to be something they don't. That they came in here trying to clean something up that doesn't need to be cleaned. That they came in here trying to beat something into submission that they can't. God, and they've begun to struggle with hopelessness, maybe outside of just the spiritual life, in their actual lives. God, my prayer this morning is for them that they will see that they are exactly the person that your son died for. That we're all broken. No matter how pretty it looks, no matter how outwardly put together we may be. God, in that brokenness, is what demanded the cross that you were willing to pick up. God, may they respond to that this morning. May your Holy Spirit draw them to you. May they repent. God, and not make some list of, I'm gonna change this and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna be better. May they just say, God, it's yours. It's all yours. God, I wanna walk with you. May you draw them into your family and may they feel that peace that passes understanding this morning, God. But my second prayer is for those of us who have responded to that. 
God, in our human nature and our flesh has battled against us. God, and we find ourselves demanding things from people that wasn't demanded of us. We find ourselves as the barricade standing between other people and you. God, may you break us. God, may you reveal where there's any ounce of religion inside of us, where there's any desire for us to be the carriers of your judgment. God, and may you reveal to us that our calling is to be the carriers of your grace and mercy. And may this church, your church, be a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden, not for transformation of lifestyle, God, but for transformation of identity. That we wouldn't become behavior modifiers, we would become gospel agents, teaching and demonstrating your grace in the ditches of life to the broken and hurting who need it. We love you, King Jesus. Be in this place this morning. Convict and draw us back to you. It's in your name we pray.